I think to Brown's credit, he knew that his words were going to be replicated all across the country. And he gave a very um, eloquent speech about uh, the Bible and the golden rule of, of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, and I think it was that that moment, you know, you could really argue that it wasn't so much Brown's raid that was a, a spark for the American Civil War, but it was Brown's trial. Uh, because Brown, this is when Brown really becomes a polarizing figure for a lot of people. And when abolitionists and anti-slavery men and women across the North are going to begin to latch on to Brown, to defend Brown, when Brown is hanged on December 2nd, 1859, there are churches and communities across the North marking the time of his hanging with bells, prayer services, songs. Uh, and I think Southerners see that and they start to think that you know this is not just one crazy guy that went off half-cocked trying to end slavery that there are a lot of other people in the north that are sympathetic towards brown's views maybe not from a militaristic standpoint but still with the same feelings of wanting to end slavery uh and so brown's trial i think is critical to understanding brown and his image in the last you know few weeks of his life and then his image after he's ultimately hanged uh, on december 2nd 1859 yeah, I think it was uh, William Lloyd Garrison who said that John Brown hanged does more for our cause than John Brown pardoned. Um, so, you know, Brown realized that he could be a martyr and that perhaps do more good that way. And Frederick Douglass says something to the effect of uh, John Brown could, or I can live for the slave, John Brown can die for the slave. Um, that, you know, up to this point, I mean, abolitionists and anti-slavery men, a lot of them were not willing to, to fight for the cause. They were willing to write about it in newspapers and speeches, but they weren't willing to die for it. Uh, but Brown was, and I think that's what made him such a polarizing figure. That's the voice of John Eric Gallow and Kevin Pollack on the hanging of John Brown. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. At the start of 1860, the nation was still reacting to John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry. Brown was put on trial and hanged. Yeah, so he was tried ultimately by the state of Virginia um, for a lot of different reasons that, that Virginia wanted to <clears throat> be the ones responsible for trying him, even though, of course, it could have been argued too that Brown's raid had been a raid against federal government property. Um, but the state of Virginia gets the, the right, if you will, to try Brown. Uh, Governor Wise wanted it to be a quick trial. It just so happened that the, uh, uh, the courts were meeting in Jefferson County at that time. So it worked out pretty well. So Brown was transported to the county seat of Jefferson County in Charlestown. He was jailed uh, just directly across the street caddy corner from the county courthouse. Um, he was still suffering from his wounds during the trial. And so most of the trial, he was laying on a cot um, not speaking too much for himself. Uh, Brown went through a, a slew of defense lawyers that for one reason or another didn't work out. Um, one of them tried to prove Brown's insanity as a way to try and save his life, uh, but Brown didn't want to have any of it. 
And so the quiet, the, the trial was pretty quick and um, probably Brown's finest moment was when he was told that he was guilty um, and that he would be executed and he stand up and, and good, gave a speech that was very quickly reported throughout the country. Newspaper coverage of Brown's trial was immense. If you look through November, 1859 uh, papers in New York, throughout the South, you can find almost a complete transcript of what was said at Brown's trial. And um, so Brown's words, I think to Brown's credit, he knew that his words were going to be replicated all across the country. And he gave a very um, eloquent speech about uh, the Bible and the golden rule of, of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, and I think it was that, that moment, you know, you could really argue that it wasn't so much Brown's raid that was a, a spark for the American Civil War, but it was Brown's trial. Uh, because Brown, this is when Brown really becomes a polarizing figure for a lot of people. And when abolitionists and anti-slavery men and women across the North are going to begin to latch on to Brown, to defend Brown, when Brown is hanged on December 2nd, 1859, there are churches and communities across the North marking the time of his hanging with bells, prayer services, songs. Uh, and I think Southerners see that and they start to think that, you know, this is not just one crazy guy that went off half-cocked trying to end slavery, that there are a lot of other people in the North that are sympathetic towards Brown's views, maybe not from a militaristic standpoint, but still with the same feelings of wanting to end slavery. Uh, and so Brown's trial, I think, is critical to understanding Brown and his image in the last, you know, few weeks of his life and then his image after he's ultimately hanged uh, on December 2nd, 1859. Although Brown had died, his spirit lived on. Northerners were becoming increasingly passionate about anti-slavery in ways that they hadn't been before. Many Northerners were indifferent on the moral damages of slavery, though enraged by the South's grip on the government, also known as the slave power. From the Compromise of 1850, to the Brooks Sumner incident, to the decision in Dred Scott, and as 1860 started, the thing most forefront on the minds of Americans was the hanging of John Brown. The nation was increasingly headed towards disunion as the election of 1860 heated up. Since the loss of 1856, Wilson and other Republicans had been scouting out potential candidates for the coming election. There was no clear candidate in mind, but Wilson knew whoever was chosen needed to unify the party and appeal to non-Republicans. Some Republicans tossed Wilson's name around, though Wilson never seriously considered it, as he knew he would not be able to unify the party. On one end, the more passionate Garrisonian men thought Wilson was too cautious and pragmatic, while the other, on the conservative side of things, thought Wilson was too radical, especially when it came to racial equality. In April 1860, Wilson pushed for funding schools for all children, black and white, in Washington, D.C., though when Wilson's adversary, Jefferson Davis, spoke passionately against it, the bill failed. Jefferson Davis was a Mississippi senator, passionate about slavery. Davis served as the chairman of the Military Affairs Committee in the Senate, which Wilson sat. Outside of their political differences, Davis and Wilson got along. The men's relationship spoke with who Wilson was, not only as a politician, but as a person. He never took political insults to heart, 
and always brushed off criticisms, especially when they were personal. As the Republican convention in Chicago came closer, Wilson showed no preference to a candidate, though he preferred Sam and Chase, the governor of Ohio. William Seward, a fellow senator, felt betrayed by Wilson's maneuvering behind the scenes to stop him from being nominated. Seward was confident that he would win and felt the support of the party was behind him, though by the time of the convention, many delegates had changed their mind. Seward had been a major figure since 1839, and though 20 years of politics made for gaining good skills, it also makes for making 20 years of foes. Because of Seward's long record, his decades of squabbles, and his rumored connection with the raid on Harper's Ferry, Wilson and other Republicans felt his nomination would be too divisive. At 12.10 p.m. on May 16th, the Republican convention was called to order in Chicago. Delegates from across the North crammed into the hall for three days of deliberations. As the votes were cast, William Seward came in first place on the first and second ballot, though not garnering enough votes to clinch the nomination. On the third ballot, his place dropped and Abraham Lincoln, the man who the nation took notice of during the 1858 midterms, was first. As the votes were recast and tallied, Lincoln came out as the winner, with the majority of delegates behind him. Seward was left feeling embarrassed and betrayed. Wilson was overjoyed that Lincoln had been elected, feeling that Lincoln would have strong appeal in the western states, and would do well in unifying the party. Lincoln had no long record to attack, and was seen as a passionate fighter of slavery, but also a moderate, a perfect mix to unify the many factions of the still young and fragile party. I'm sure that Wilson also felt a sense of pride to see a man with a story similar to his own rise from poverty into such a position of prestige. Praise for Lincoln's victory was not universal, though. Many, especially outsiders, viewed Lincoln as an inexperienced, rugged Westerner who wouldn't appeal to Northern men. Upon returning to the Senate chamber for the first time after the election, the sorely defeated Seward noted that his fellow Republicans treated him cordially, though only one truly showed his care. Quote, only Wilson came half a dozen times and sat down by me, waiting for me to open a conversation on the transactions at Chicago, end quote. Wilson showed himself as a loyal friend and good-natured victor. Heading into 1860, the Democrats were deeply divided. The split between Buchanan and Douglas had deepened, and the Democrats had become unable to unify around a single nominee. Buchanan already stepped aside, not intending to serve a second term, after his four tumultuous years in office. After two conventions and 20 ballots, the Democrats finally nominated Stephen Douglas as their nominee. Southern Democrats split from the party and formed the Southern Democratic Party, formally nominating Vice President John C. Breckinridge, who received the support of President Buchanan. The Southern Democrats planned to strategically divide the party in order to divide the Democrats and further divide the nation with it. They knew that the best way to get the majority of the South to desire disunion was if Republicans had a victory, so they strategically attempted to split the vote. 
Southerners had become paranoid of slave revolts and attempted anarchy through men like John Brown, which Democrats charged to be closely aligned with the interests of Republicans. By 1856 and 1860, the Know-Nothings were completely fractured, though through their fracturing came the Constitutional Union Party that contained both Know-Nothings and former Whigs. The Constitutional Union Party sought to preserve the Union through compromise. Their slogan was, quote, the Union, the Constitution, and the Enforcement of Laws, end quote. They nominated former Tennessee Senator John Bell for president. With the conventions passed, it was now time to campaign, and Wilson was dedicated to fighting as the Republicans had never fought before. Wilson traveled all across the Northeast, speaking to hundreds of thousands of voters, pleading with them to stand with liberty and freedom. From both New York to Boston, Wilson was engulfed in vigor and emotions from the roaring crowds. Wilson served as a major leader in the growing party, analyzing and devising attempted campaign strategies across the states. Despite Republicans having a strong path to victory, Wilson grew nervous of failure. This was the moment his entire career had been building up to, the moment that his anti-slavery heart had wished for for decades. For the first time, victory was attainable, and failure could not be possible. Wilson pleaded with whoever he could get to speak and campaign for Lincoln, even asking the evocative and polarizing Sumner to speak as the North grew closer to the cause of abolition. The time had come to vote, and the nation came out in droves. At a party at the Boston Music Hall, Wilson learned the results. Abraham Lincoln had won. Lincoln won just 40% of the popular vote, though he clinched 18 of the 33 states. Stephen Douglas came in second place in popular votes, but both John C. Breckinridge of the Southern Democrats and John C. Bell of the Constitutional Union Party outperformed him in the Electoral College. Wilson spoke, his voice tired from campaigning, saying, quote, We have won power. We are going to take possession of the federal government. I have the most undoubting confidence in the capacity, honor, integrity, and devotion of Abraham Lincoln. I say to the men of the South who have been threatening the dissolution of the Union, who are calling conventions, who are calling blue blockades, go on if you dare. We intend to stand by the Constitution and by the Union at any and every hazard, come what may." End quote. The Republicans had made the right choice, and Abraham Lincoln, the rugged and gaunt-looking lawyer from Illinois, was to be the president. Not only was Lincoln the right man to win, he was the right man to lead the nation into the impending struggle of disunion. When Wilson returned to Washington, fear and tension filled the air as Southern extremists promised violence and havoc along with secession. He and Harriet lived in Washington, in a home where most apartments were rented by Republican politicians. Wilson became fearful after threats to the building began to swirl. Harriet had been traveling to D.C. with Wilson since she had fallen into sickness. Henry Hamilton remained in Natick, living with one of Wilson's friends. Harriet's illness seemed to improve when Henry was around, making her feel best being with him in the capital. In a letter to his son, Wilson wrote in May 1860, quote, My dear son, I write to you a few words to say how hopeful I am 
that you will be very kind to your dear mother while you remain at home. Your mother is very weak. She cannot bear much. Do, my dear son, help your mother all you can. Be a kind and good boy. I am sure you will try to make your dear mother happy, and in doing so, you will be dearer to me. End quote. As the nation fell to pieces, the 304 senators and congressmen from the north, south, east, and west prepared for the worst. In December 1860, Kentucky Senator John J. Critterton introduced what came to be known as the Critterton Compromise. The compromise included six amendments to the Constitution in an effort to appease southern states to remain in the Union. The First Amendment would make the 3630 line the method of determining whether states would be slave or free, the provision of the Missouri Compromise that was overruled in the Dred Scott case. Amendments 2 through 4 prohibited Congress's power to abolish slavery in any federal jurisdiction or to regulate the interstate slave trade. Amendment 5 forced all jurisdictions to comply with the Fugitive Slave Law, and the sixth and most outrageous amendment said that no future amendment could change any of this or empower Congress to regulate slavery. Wilson and many others were outraged by compromise, nonetheless a compromise so appeasing to the slave power. As others bickered and squabbled in the hopes of keeping the nation together, Wilson sought to prepare for the inevitable. He began to request military information from the executive branch in order to get a better idea of how bases in the South were being controlled and what the capabilities of the Army would be. Just a few days after the Critterton Compromise failed, on December 20, 1860, the South Carolina State Legislature voted 169-0 to zero to leave the United States of America. Disunion was no longer a threat and fear. It was a living, breathing monster that would go on to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. Not long after South Carolina, Mississippi departed from the Union on January 9, 1861. And then, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana all followed throughout January. In February, Texas, who less than 20 years earlier had helped to speed the ball towards disunion, seceded. Here again is the voice of Senate historian Betty Coed. Southern senators began to leave and to leave office in various ways. Some of them submitted resignations, some of them just walked out, but they began to leave um, to support the Confederacy. And they left, obviously they left over the issue of slavery. And uh, most of them went on to serve in Confederate Senates in their home states and became very active members of the Confederacy, either through the military or through its political um, organizations. On January 21st, 1861, Jefferson Davis, the senator from the seceded state of Mississippi, rose in the chamber. The room fell quiet as the honored senator spoke. In what would become known as his farewell address, Davis spoke of his state's departure due to being, quote, deprived in the union of the rights which our fathers bequeathed to us, end quote. As the Senate, at a loss for words, listened to the closing remarks, Davis and his departing colleagues rose and left the Senate chamber for the final time. Before exiting the room, Davis crossed around the chamber 
and bid a final farewell to his northern friend and colleague, Henry Wilson, saying, quote, I hope we can meet again in calmer times, end quote. Also saying he would attempt to take control of the chaotic fervor in the southern states. In February, representatives from the six rebellious states met in Montgomery, Alabama, forming the Confederate States of America and electing Jefferson Davis as the president of the Confederacy. Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina joined the seceded band of states in April and May. With Davis out of the Senate, Wilson obtained the traitorous man's position as the chairman of the Military Affairs Committee, a role that now required him to raise an army to fight the impending Civil War. In today's episode, we covered the hanging of John Brown, the many candidates in the election of 1860, Wilson's campaigning for Abraham Lincoln, and the South's departure from the nation following Lincoln's victory. In the next episode, we'll actually begin the period of the Civil War. Thank you to this episode's guests, Betty Coed, John Eric Gillow, and Kevin Pollack. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, please send an email to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to respond in a future episode. If you're interested in doing more research and reading, or checking out some pictures, go to henrywilsonhistory.com. I look forward to moving ahead in the life of Henry Wilson and the Civil War.